There you go. Four punch, five punch, six punch combination. Body shot, body shot. Bang, 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 bang. Telling him not to counter punch. Welcome fight fans, episode 43 of the Fight City Podcast. I'm your host, Alton Kodash. Happy to bring in Michael Carbert shortly to discuss some of the hottest light heavyweight fights of the past. And afterwards, we will be discussing with Joe Smith Jr. exclusively what he believes is his path forward to victory in his hotly anticipated fight on August 22nd against a leader, Storm Alvarez. So last Saturday night at the Microsoft Theater in Los Angeles, PBC put on an interesting card featuring 18-year-old recent high school graduate Vito Milnicki Jr., Cuban amateur standout David Morrell, as well as a crossroads welterweight affair between Jamal James and Thomas DeLorme. Starting with Milnicki, he produced another impressive knockout in his sixth professional outing, blasting out an overmatch Chris Rollins in two rounds. Initially signed to top rank when he turned pro at 17, now he's with PBC. You know, he might have a bright future ahead of him, but obviously with only six professional fights and <laughs> a recent high school diploma. It's a little too early to tell so far in his career. I mean, he's no Wilfred Benitez or Clarence Bones Adams, both of whom had their first title shots at 17 and 18 years old, respectively. But he's in the right promotional hands in the division he's fighting in. He's a welterweight, and he is with PBC now. And considering their stronghold on the division, um, you know, he's in the right hands to progress favorably if he has the talent and the will to do so. Uh, the co-feature event of Fox PBC featured Cuban amateur champion David Morell. He took on 22-0 Lennox Allen in only his third professional outing, and he went 12 rounds, and he swept nearly every one of them in an impressive performance. Morell, good fighter, still shows flashes of his amateur style, however, a lot of slapping shots that he hasn't habitually turned over yet. But still, his pedigree and talent were on display, and his versatile punch selection combined with his 6'1 frame and 78-inch reach at 168, might pose a problem in the division as he develops. He won the interim WBA 168-pound title with his victory, but still has a few fights ahead of him before he's ready to take on the best at 168 pounds. In the main event of that evening, once beaten Jamal James took on Puerto Rican journeyman Thomas DeLorme for the vacant interim WBA 147-pound title, and took an impressive unanimous decision after 12 hard-fought rounds. After taking some hard shots from Delorme early on, James weathered that storm and began to control the distance by the middle rounds, landing his right hand with regularity down the stretch to seal a victory. He faced considerably less adversity from the hard-hitting Delorme than Jesse Vargas and your Dennis Ugas both did, both of whom were dropped late by the Puerto Rican. Uh, and with the win, he sets himself up for some bigger matchups at 147 pounds later this year and in 2021. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he fights later this year, given all the action seen on the PBC horizon. Guys like Earl Spence and Sean Porter with, with dates in the near future. You know, maybe we see a rematch with him and your Dennis Ugas, uh, talking about Jamal James. 
Jamal lost a hard-fought fight to Ugas in 2016, but a rematch might be the kind of eliminator-type fight that could set both of them up, the winner, for some big money opportunities down the road in 2021. We shall see. So now we're going to look back at a light heavyweight triple header, two in the past, one in the future. We'll start with Archie Moore versus Harold Hercules Johnson, their fifth encounter. Tomorrow on Tuesday will be the 66-year anniversary between these two fighters. They faced off in 1954 at the Madison Square Garden. Um, that was uh, about the time when you first got into boxing, right, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay, them's fighting words, Alden. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not, not quite, not quite, not quite. But, uh, but if I was around at that time and was paying attention to what was going on, uh, no question, uh, Archie Moore would be uh, must wa- must watch uh, or must see TV, as they like to say. Um, and uh, of course, he, I believe. Uh, the rivalry with Harold Johnson stretched over what four or five fights? Five fights. So this was the yeah. last. This was the fifth and final. They were uh, three and one against each other. Moore beat them three out of four times, uh, but it was always competitive each and every fight. So Archie Moore, by giving Phillies Harold Johnson a title shot, he did uh, what Jack Johnson in the past wouldn't do in giving dangerous black challengers a shot at the title at a time when. Black challengers, especially in Murderer's Row, as they called it, uh, struggled their whole career to get title shots. I mean, for Archie Moore, it took him 18 years, 160 fights, nearly 100 knockouts before getting a title shot that he won at age 36. (laughs) He kind of outlasted some of the rest of them, the Charlie Burleys, uh, you know, the guys that retired at age 35, 36 because they just couldn't get recognition for their greatness yes and um i mean it's overlooked of course because moore did win a title he did establish himself as a as a fairly dominant light heavyweight champion and then he went on to campaign at the heavyweight uh level and Mm -hmm. had some success and gave rocky marciano a very tough fight um uh, so it's overlooked, but in fact, Archie Moore is a member. He he deserves to be considered a member of Murderer's Row uh, yeah. for, for how long he had to wait and what he had to endure. And the fact that he had to fight so many great fighters. He had to face uh, guys like Ezra Charles, uh, Holman Williams, I believe. Yeah. You know, some of these guys. Jimmy Bivens and uh, yeah. Charlie Burley. Yeah. Know, not always coming out on top either. Charlie Burley has oh. impressive victories over him, as does uh, Ezra Charles knocked him out. Well, yes, uh, he he, t- he took some serious punishment from from Ezra Charles, who, um, I mean, Moore admitted in an interview that that Ezra Charles just had his number. You know, he he just you know it's one of those things. It's a question of styles and. Uh, so uh, no, uh, it's it's uh, there's there's no question that as a, that Archie Moore deserves to be considered part of that murderer's role, but he outlasted all the neglect and and eventually, you know, his career was definitely a success. Yeah. Um, and part of that success, it should be noted, is 
he's besting a guy like Harold Johnson because it, it's often overlooked, but Harold Johnson is an all-time great light heavyweight. He's a oh, fantastic yeah. fighter. And uh, so it's, it's definitely uh, a feather in Archie Moore's uh, uh, cap, so to speak, that, that, that he proved himself the better man, despite being significantly older at the time. In my opinion, there's absolutely no question. Archie Moore is top 20 all-time pound for pound. Uh, yeah, he was he was 11 years older than Harold Johnson. Um, he was coming off some rough fights with Joey Maxim, and Harold Johnson was on the up and up. He was coming off victories against Dino Valdez, against Ezra Charles. You know, this is the real deal, and this is a guy given Moore's prior success, winning three out of the four of their first four fights, could have easily justified avoiding, especially en route to big fights against Marciano, which was already on the horizon for him, but. They ended up facing off, and it was a hell of a fight. Johnson was winning the fight handily. He was ahead on two of the three judges' scorecards, scored a knockdown in the 10th against Archie Moore, but eventually the old mongoose uh, figured him out, wore him out, hurt him badly in the 13th round, and finished him in round 14. Uh, and the worst thing about Johnson is that despite his tremendous effort, uh, he never got another title shot for another seven years, and then he finally won the light heavyweight title, but still never got the chance to avenge that crushing defeat to Archie Moore, uh, which really hung over him uh, like a dark cloud as he got towards the twilight of his career. Yeah, but despite that, he, he Harold Johnson is is uh, still a great fighter uh, and not just a great light heavyweight. He's also one of the great Philly fighters. Oh, yeah. And, Philadelphia has so many terrific uh, champions. So many great fighters came out of the city of Philadelphia, and Harold Johnson's name deserves to be remembered whenever talk of great Philly fighters comes up. Yeah, I highly recommend anybody watch Harold Johnson footage if they haven't seen any. Admittedly, the name is just so ordinary that sometimes you tend to overlook a guy by the name of Harold Johnson, uh, but... I mean, his fighting style was terrific. His hand speed and his combination punching, his counter punching. Uh, his fight against Archie Moore was a tremendous, tremendous fight. Uh, the fifth fight. At he also, had, he also had an all-time great jab. He's one, he, he, made oh, yeah. our list, he made our list of the uh, top 12 masters of the jab. Um, he's on there. I can't remember exactly what, where he ranks on it, but uh, he, was a, he was a great technical boxer. Yep. And... Uh, very smart, very tough. Uh, yeah, and I agree with you. He, he, perhaps it's partly the name, Harold Johnson, and kind of like you know Joe Smith, who <laughs> uh, <laughs> we will be featuring later on this podcast in an yes, exclusive but, interview. Uh, but yeah, it's it's easy to to maybe forget him, but people, re serious boxing fans, shouldn't. Um, and of course, serious boxing fans know all about Archie Moore. And it's an outstanding article that you wrote, Alden, and it'll be uh, a pleasure to re-feature it again tomorrow. On, on Tuesday, yeah. Well, today, depending on when <laughs> the podcast is, is released. Oh. <laughs> so before we get to the Joe Smith Jr. interview that we'll be featuring very soon, um, let's discuss Jean Pascal versus Chad Dawson. Friday will be the 10-year anniversary for this fight. August 14, 2010, in the Bell Center. Uh, this was a classic number one versus number two for the vacant 
recognized light heavyweight championship of the world. And, you know, we don't get enough of these kind of fights these days. It's frustrating to reminisce on something like this, uh, which took place in the fight city. That's right. And uh, a lot of uh, interesting storylines connected to this fight. As you mentioned, this was this was considered, uh, at least by those in the know, the fight for all the marbles at 175 pounds. And in yeah. fact, Ring, Ring Magazine, I believe, sent someone to Montreal carrying the coveted Ring belt. They did. Which they were going to award to the winner. And... Um, and it was a it was a big event. It, it was the you know the culmination of a lot of of work on on the part of of Jean Pascal, obviously, and also Yvonne Michel, who was his promoter at the time, is is for all intents and purposes his manager, and um, and they got a very respectable crowd out at the Bell Center, and it was broadcast on HBO, and. Uh, say what you want about Jean Pascal. I mean, the, the the one thing that you can't fault him for ever is his heart and desire and his willingness to to put it on the line, and uh, and that has led to success for him. It's also led to you know some serious uh, punishment taken uh, you know at the hands of uh, Sergey Kovalev in two fights. And this fight was no uh, exception. He took some heavy shots by Dawson at a time where yes. Dawson was a dangerous man at light heavyweight. Yeah, Pascal Pascal has never had what you would call textbook skills. And um, he points to Roy Jones Jr. as his greatest influence. And uh, Roy Jones Jr. strikes me as, you know, like back in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of heavyweights who tried to emulate Muhammad Ali. And, of course, the thing is, there was only one Muhammad Ali who could move yeah. around with his hands down at his waist and, and pull away from punches and so on. There's a reason why those types of maneuvers are not taught in the gym. That, that's not textbook uh, technique on how to box. And, and there's only one Roy Jones Jr., and Pascal, uh, there's no arguing with success. The, the, the man is once again a champion at 175 pounds, but um, but he's taken a lot of punishment. Defense yeah. is not his his strong suit. Well, in this fight, it was really his footwork only. He was doing a very good job keeping his distance and closing the distance when he needed to against Dawson, but his head movement wasn't really there. It was more or less just his footwork, keeping himself out of harm's way while Dawson just stalked and prodded. And some may say Dawson might have ran out of time and that the headbutt was uh, kind of uh, a, an easy way out for Pascal, who, who in, his, uh, in Dawson's defense, Pascal was badly hurt in the 11th round. He was also badly hurt in the 9th round. But whether it was Pascal's heart or it was something about Dawson not being able to close the show, Pascal never really let him follow up on the attack when he was hurt. Uh, so given how he recovered after the ninth round in which Dawson put on a tremendous beating on him uh, and Pascal won the 10th round, uh, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Pascal, who was badly hurt on several occasions in the 11th round, could have closed the show on his feet, maybe even won the 12th round. Uh, he was certainly in a position that uh, he could have taken off the 12th round to win the fight. He was that far ahead. Uh, for some reason, Dawson just 
took way too long to get going and couldn't close the show. But a lot of that has to do with Pascal's heart and determination, um, ultimately winning the lineal light heavyweight title in front of his hometown. Yes, and one of the reasons uh, we're talking about this fight is not just because it's the 10th year anniversary coming up, but also because we'll be featuring a new article from contributor Jamie Rebner uh, about the fight. And um, Jamie was there. Jamie was at the fight. Not only was he at the fight, but prior to it, he actually, by chance, ran into Chad Dawson (laughs) and had a brief little conversation with Chad Dawson, uh, who at the time, no one in Montreal was recognizing. There were very few people. Um, you know, in Montreal, it was all about Jean Pascal. Nobody yeah. really cared about Chad Dawson at all. And um, and and uh, but but in the article, Rebner talks. Jamie talks about how you know he wasn't really a huge fan of Pascal. That Pascal. I mean, okay. To illustrate, I recall being at a fight card at the Montreal Casino back in about I think 2007. Uh, and Jean Pascal was just then starting to become, you know, a presence uh, in Montreal. He was starting to become like, a, you know, something close to a, a, a Montreal celebrity. And he was introduced to the crowd, and he entered the ring with a ring card girl on each arm, you know, and he was dressed rather flamboyantly. And so th- he he exuded a certain personality. He was a bit he was a bit showy. He was a bit mm-hmm. boastful. And and Jamie, for his part, he wasn't exactly enamored uh, with Pascal's persona and actually was kind of, you know, even though he was uh, a Montrealer, he, he was kind of like more drawn to Chad Dawson. Hmm. And, and But then he encountered Chad Dawson on the streets in, Mo- in Montreal and, and kind of, uh, you know, tried to approach him and hail him as, a, you know, I, I'm with you, you know, like. You know, yeah, and, and Dawson's response was very well. It it was cool enough or cold enough that it made. By the time the fight got going, um, <laughs> Rebner Jamie's allegiance uh, shifted somewhat. So that's discussed in the in the article. So it's it's great to have a a report on this fight that comes from the perspective of a person who was actually there in the Bell Center uh, when it happened. And uh, so we'll be featuring that on the site uh, in a matter of a few days. Now, Dawson's not a larger-than-life type figure. I recall seeing him after his first fight against Glenn Johnson. I believe that was in Tampa, Florida. Just uh, I didn't even have the guts to approach him. He just didn't seem like a very approachable guy. He <laughs> seemed a little mean, you know, bad chat, and he kind of lived to that alias. Uh not really a, a super friendly, uh, happy-go-lucky type figure, but he can definitely fight. Um, or, or he could. He could. He could definitely fight. Yeah, and then Andre Ward seemed to kind of ruin him, right? Yeah. yeah. The problem with Chad Dawson, I think, going into his fight against Jean Pascal was that his last two years of his career were spent fighting two fights against Glenn Johnson and Antonio Tarver, who were basically the past of the light heavyweight division. Those were the stars of the division back in 04 and 05. This was 09 and 2010. So, you know, he was out of, uh, 
out of out of the spectrum fighting the future of the light heavyweight division guys like Jean Pascal for probably too long before he finally fought Pascal and it seemed like his uh he was pacing himself like he was fighting an older fighter where Pascal kind of got the jump on him and uh kind of beat him with, by uh, out hustling him primarily uh and, which and, I think and, he, and and if Dawson had bothered to watch a film uh or a video of, of Jean Pascal's fight, for example, with Carl Frotch. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he should have known, right? He should have known that this was going to be a completely different uh, uh, situation from from fighting guys like Glenn Johnson and Tarver. Yeah, yeah, but 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 I agree. It's it, it's like he was not. It's like he, he or I wonder if in some way, shape, or form, he may have been a bit cowed by the by the hometown crowd. Could have been. It seemed like the crowd was carrying Pascal a lot more than it was Dawson. And Dawson had some huge moments, but of course it was treated with stony silence from the Bell Center. uh, Whereas Pascal, you know, was just energized by his moments he had against Dawson. Uh, Might have even helped him stay on his feet. Some of the cases where he was taking some huge shots, huge combinations, at least against Dawson. But, um, yeah. Well, and it is, I just want to say, isn't it amazing to to look back at that fight? And you mentioned the huge shots he took, and then you look at the two, not exactly punishing fights, but but still they took a toll at least psychologically. His two fights with Bernard Hopkins, and then you look at the the serious punishment he endured in his in his two battles with Sergey Kovalev. It's pretty amazing to realize here we are. It's 2020. And Jean-Pascal is coming off two huge wins over Marcus Brown and Badu Jack. I mean, I think it's fair to say that nobody thought that that Jean-Pascal would be in the situation he's in at the moment. Yeah, I think a lot of people wrote him off after his devastating loss to Dimitri Bivol in November in a fight that I was even questioning whether or not it should have been made. Uh, Yeah. And I thought it should have been stopped. Uh a lot earlier than well, it wasn't stopped. It went the distance. So yeah, um, yeah. So credit to him for still being a serious player at light heavyweight. He has a regular WBA title that he won against Badu Jack, and he certainly has some big opportunities ahead of him. Namely, I'd love to see him up against the winner of Joe Smith Jr. versus Alider Alvarez, um, which will take place August 22nd, and probably my most anticipated fight of this year. I'm not sure about yourself, but this. Uh, will be a truly, truly uh, spectacular encounter, in my opinion. Well, I, I agree. I hope you're right. It, it, it has the makings of a terrific fight. And uh, and these are two it fighters. It has the makings. That, yeah, and, and, and these are two fighters that, that I like. I, I, I like Joe Smith Jr. Um, he was our fighter of the year back in, uh, I think, 2016. That's right. Um when he beat Bernard Hopkins and he beat, uh, Andrew Fonfaro. Yeah. yeah shocking wins. Yes. I mean, uh, so Joe Smith jr. Is a feel good story. And Elider Alvarez is, well, I mean, he's the guy who crushed the crusher. Um, yeah. and, uh, has arguably deserved more credit. Uh, I mean, his, his win over Jean Pascal only gets better with age, right? That's true. And, and that was a dominant win, a one-sided win. Um, so he's been 
at or near the top of the of the light heavyweight division for quite some time. There's no doubt that that Adonis Stevenson ducked him, uh, and uh, so it, it. You know, this is a fight where I think I'll be happy no matter what the outcome is because both guys deserve, uh, you know, deserve to to move forward, and. Um, and I agree, it has the makings of, of what could be a very exciting fight because it's a crossroads fight. I mean, neither one of these guys are huge names. You know, they don't have, a, neither one really has a huge amount of clout. They don't necessarily sell a huge number of tickets. So, you know, a defeat would be devastating to, to their career. And so I expect two fighters that are going to be highly motivated, going to be putting it all on the line. Both guys can punch. Um, it should be great. Yeah, I mean this this fight will determine likely the next challenger for the WBO light heavyweight title. Uh, both guys are eager to get back in the title picture, and if they win this fight, their next fight will almost certainly be for a title WBO light heavyweight championship. Uh, if they can get past that and become a champion, you know they got guys like Dmitry Bivol, Artur Baturbiev, Sean Pascal. You know, some really good unification fights to make uh, in a light heavyweight division that's finally starting to unify. So, you know, I think it's an exciting time to uh, be a light heavyweight prospect. And both of these guys have a lot to work for as they face off against each other on August 22nd. But without further ado, I'm going to lead you into our exclusive interview with Joe Smith Jr. as uh, we take it away with him. All right, so August 22nd at the MGM Grand in the bubble, you'll be taking on former light heavyweight champion Leader Alvarez in the WBO title eliminator. What are your thoughts going into this fight? Um, it's going to be a great fight. I'm looking forward to it. Um, it's definitely going to be different without a crowd, but uh, I'm prepared and uh, you know, just looking forward to getting in there and you know, getting uh, closer to that title. So many believe that Alvarez will be the hardest punch you've ever faced, even going so far to say, like, guys like uh, Hart and Bivol, while big punchers in their own right, don't match up to him in terms of the kind of sheer size and strength he displayed against Kovalev. What are your personal feelings on this? Um, yeah, he's probably one of the bigger punchers that I've fought in, but, um, you know, I believe, uh, you know, he really only has a good right hand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how, you know, how strong it really is when I'm in there with him. You seem like the kind of guy that gets the most pleasure out of the rough and tumble, high contact type fight. But uh, do you like the kind of external pressure this event's getting, uh, making it feel like uh, this is going to be one of the best fights of the year and you have a lot of pressure to live up to that? Uh, really, I don't, um, none of that bothers me. I don't, uh, say that any mind. I'm right now focused on, uh, my training and, you know, getting in there and winning this fight, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, the Fight City has named you its Fighter of the Year, actually, in 2016, after your upset knockouts of Andrew Fonfara and Bernard Hopkins. Uh, since then, however, you fought only on four occasions uh, with this fight against Alvarez. 
taking the first time you stepped into the ring on two occasions less than eight months apart. Could you take us through a little of uh, some of the reasons surrounding some of the inactivity and what you hope to achieve going forward? Well, you know, that's just, uh, you know, I'm always ready to fight and looking forward to fight. It's just, I guess, the way things worked out, you know, fights got postponed and uh, different things like that. But uh, I hope to uh, win this fight and uh, get right back in there. Mm-hmm. So even in defeat, many, including myself, don't hold your loss to Dimitri Bivol against you due to the heart, toughness, and strength you displayed over the 12-round contest. Additionally, you were probably the only man in Bivol's career that had him hurt. Uh, and considering Bivol's top standing in the division, does, this, does that fight give you uh, a lot of confidence as you make your second run at the light heavyweight title? Yeah, I mean, I believe I learned a lot in that fight. You know, things that I realized I needed to go back in and work on. Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, you know, my last fight, you think, you know, during this training camp, I feel like I, I've improved even more. So hopefully uh, everything comes together on the 22nd, and uh, I feel great. So. You've obviously heard the news about all the main event fighters and managers who caught COVID in the last minute before their fight, and guys like Jim Herring, Stephen Fulton, Mabel Lapierre's manager. The last thing a lot of fight, fight fans want to see going into this fight, uh, especially of this expectation, is a last-minute cancellation. So are there any special precautions your camp is taking to avoid this type of thing? Um, I mean, I just – I've been – Training alone pretty much, just me and my trainer. And we've kept the same sparring partners throughout the whole camp. Mm-hmm. And sanitizing everything and washing up as soon as you're done. But, uh, it's tricky. On the, the way to Vegas, you know, I'm going to make sure I'm wearing a mask and bring lots of sanitizer and uh, maybe an extra or clothing or something. <laughs> <laughs> as much as you can do to prevent this horrible virus, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, as a fan, I can't help to imagine a fight between yourself and Artur Beturbiev, uh just being a dream fight with light heavyweight division. Both of you guys can crack like a mule and have a lot of uh, boxing finesse to go along with that. How would you envision a, envision a fight like that playing out? Is that something you would really look forward to in the future? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to win the WBO championship and then uh, unify it against uh, someone like him. It would be uh, awesome, and I believe that fight would uh, draw a lot of people. Because oh, yeah. It's likely someone's going to get knocked out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've uh, never seen you knock out. So, and I've seen Bivol hit the canvas before, so uh, you got yeah, that going. I, I got a pretty good chin, you know. I mean, I fought, I fought uh, you know, twice with a broken jaw and couldn't get stopped. So, <laughs> <laughs> going back in history, who are some of your favorite light heavyweights of all time? Um, light heavyweights. I mean, Roy Jones is probably one of the best. One of my uh, 
favorite. You know, I, I used to like watching his knockout uh, highlight reels. <laughs> <laughs> Virgil Hill. That body shot knockout, you one of your favorites? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> What about some older-time light heavyweights? Some, sometimes I, I think back to guys like Matthew Saad Muhammad, and I think of your straightforward, rough-and-tumble style, and it kind of reminds me of guys like him and Dwight Muhammad Kawi. Um, do you go back that far? Yeah, uh, no, not really, to be honest. I, I wasn't I, – to be honest, I never really was, a, like, a huge boxing fan. It was just something that, you know, I ended up getting it put into uh, like my father brought me to a gym and uh you know I just stuck with it and so yeah I, I was good at hmm. loved it and, you know, then I just really since I've been in it as a professional I've paid attention to like you know the big oh you know the big fight hmm. yeah I mean there's a pretty uh illustrious past that I would recommend you look into as well. Uh, because some regard you, including myself, as kind of like a throwback fighter. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yep. so I'm really happy to have you on the show, uh, Smith Jr. Uh, one last thing you want to say to the fans going into your fight on the 22nd against the leader Alvarez? I uh, hope everyone's uh, enjoying the fight and, uh, you know, I'm going to give it my best to come out on top and uh, looking forward to the next one. You got any predictions? I just predict that it's going to be uh, a great, exciting fight. Hey, I expect a tough, clean fight. Protect yourself at all times. Any questions from the challenger?